You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, a weekly discussion of theology, philosophy, literature, art, and other things that human beings do well. And now your hosts, David Grubbs, Nathan Gilmore, and Michael Farmer. So the same Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode 152, and we're joined by uh, what usually is our January lineup, but we're starting it up a little bit early because Baby Grubs has arrived. If you've got David on Facebook, uh, you can see young Baron there. Did I get that name right? That is how it's spelled. I don't know if they, if he's pronouncing it Baron or something. <laughs> yeah, it sounds Grubsian. Right, well, for some reason, I can't think of Grubs, you know, intentionally doing things uh, French. Yeah, well, fair <laughs> enough. Maybe maybe there's an old English pronunciation I'm not aware of. Well, that's how I just did it. So, uh, but at any rate, uh, so I am joined today, as usual, by Dr. Michael Farmer, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College in Saint Bonifatius, Minnesota. Michael. How are you doing today? Pretty good, Nathan. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. It's almost feeling like autumn here in Georgia, so I imagine it's probably snowy in Minnesota. I believe the high today is 17. <laughs> yes, indeed. And because this is our January lineup slash David, you know, has a newborn at home lineup, we're also joined this morning by Dr. Danny Anderson, Assistant Professor of English here at Emmanuel College. Danny, how are you doing? I'm doing pretty well, Nathan. Thanks for having me back. Oh, yeah, it's good to have you. Good to have you. Let's Our listeners might know him from the uh, Sectarian Review, everybody's favorite <laughs> podcast in alternate universe Earth. <laughs> now, so, well, now know, see, Danny, I tried to transition quickly so he couldn't do that. but <laughs> With quantum mechanics, that is actually a possibility, uh, Michael. So um, uh, you guys are just in the wrong dimension. So, uh, Oh, I'm, I'm so often in the wrong dimension. <laughs> I do, uh, listeners, want to pitch our other... Uh, currently existent on this plane of existence shows. Uh, the Christian Feminist Podcast is still clicking along. There should be a new episode relatively soon. And sometime in the next week or so, you should have another episode of uh, Book of Nature, our science, mathematics, and faith show. Also, keep watching the feed for new interviews on Christian humanist profiles. Here recently, uh, Victoria Reynolds Farmer interviewed, and I don't have the name in front of me, Michael. Paula... Paula... Trimble Familetti, I think, is her name. That's the one on a book on uh, feminist biblical hermeneutics, which is a very good interview. I just listened to it on the way to work today. Hey, I did too. And I quite enjoyed it. So, and any- uh, what, yesterday for you guys, but four days from now for us, which is, uh, I think we might be back into quantum mechanics territory. Yeah. <laughs> um, Todd Pedler, we apologize. My, my interview with Joseph Bottom should have gone up. And then ah, next week, we have Victoria's interview with Christian Smith, uh-huh. which uh, is one of our bigger bigger gets, I think. Oh, yeah. And then uh, we have a whole mess of stuff coming out where Nathan interviews people he loves. Oh, yes, yes. My, my Seminary Heroes series continues. A, a mudslide of famous theologians lands on top of Nathan Gilmore's head, and God knows what will happen. <laughs> yes, yes, where I pick fights with my intellectual heroes. <laughs> 
<laughs> because that's what I do. You, well, you were so emboldened by Hauerwas telling you you were such a good reader that. Well, and also when I when I tried to get belligerent with him, and he paused for a moment and then said, "Yeah, I like your reading better. That's how I should have written it." I said, oh, well. <laughs> "I said I am now standing astride the world, and I am awesome." <laughs> the, 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 this is gonna be. This is going to be Nathan's high school football glory story when he's like 70 years old. <laughs> and, and, and like a, like a high school football glory story, it's going to end with him blowing out his knee. <laughs> <laughs> That's nice. That's nice. I very well might trying to interview. Well, I'm not going to give away who I'm interviewing. So, uh, listeners, we are not going to be releasing an up ep- or we're not going to be recording an episode during the week of Thanksgiving. We're going to be coming back after that. So, uh, stay tuned. We haven't gone away. We're just taking a week off for that Thanksgiving break while I am in uh, Disney World. And in fact, when you're listening to this, I will already have gone to Florida. I'm going to try to update the XML from the hotel room Monday and Tuesday mornings. We'll see how that works. Uh, but that's a whole lot of housekeeping. So let's get to today's subject matter, shall we? If you've been following the Facebook feed, you know that today's episode is going to deal with Immanuel Kant's 1884. No. 1784 essay. There you go. Uh, what is enlightenment? Yeah, I, I caught myself. I caught myself. Uh, and Danny, I just want to get right into the essay. So right out of the gate, Kant starts the essay by defining his terms. Uh, this is sort of a classic argument from definition introduction. I'm going to quote here, quote, enlightenment is man's release from his self-incurred tutelage, uh, end quote. And tutelage is the inability to use understanding without direction. And that tutelage is self-incurred not because of, quote, lack of reason, end quote, but, quote, lack of resolution and courage, end quote. Now, Danny, as a sort of programmatic statement for a manifesto, that's hard to beat. That's good rhetoric right there. What does this first brief paragraph do rhetorically as an introduction, and what promises does it make to the reader? Uh, sure. Uh, let me first thank you for having Kant be the subject on my first episode uh, back <laughs> while I'm all rusty. This is uh, that's very very kind of you. Uh, but, but it's uh, very readable, Kant. Yes, that's not, yeah, that's true. That's yeah, true. And, and listeners, I, sh- I should point out that this is not the Kant prose of the three critiques. Uh, this is this really is a manifesto made for magazine reading. Yeah. Yeah, and 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 you're right. Manifesto is the right term, actually. Rhetorically, uh, these definitions. I established sort of a sense of urgency, uh, immediacy, sort of op- opportunity almost, and it sort of indicate almost a historical moment at which things can happen now. And, and so um, I think that, first of all, it's interesting that the, the tutelage is, is coded as sort of like an enslavement and, and not necessarily uh, in the way that we see our own students today as a sort of gift to them, right? Uh, mm-hmm. It's actually something that's in, uh, trapping them in, in, in the ways of, uh, in con- concretized ways of thinking. Right. Um, but they do also, I mean, the, but the, the, this introduction does indicate rhetorically that this is a moment at which opportunity is available and we can sort of fix problems. Um, we're going to get to the ideas of progress probably later. Um, and that the problems can actually be fixed if we approach it in a certain, uh, way, which requires individual courage, uh, which is sort of, uh, 
putting some pressure on the reader, if you want to think of it that way, as a mm-hmm. way to uh, 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 give them a sense of moral obligation um, to listen to the or to read the rest of the essay first of all, but then to act upon it uh, on its upon its ideas because it is a uh, a, a manifesto of sorts, right? Um, right? But ultimately, I think that this uh, oh, these sort of moral obligations that are implicit in this uh, uh, introduction. Uh, really point to the essay's call for like a peaceful perfection of the system. It is, you don't really see the idea of upheaval uh, in, implicit in this or, or it's not like radical politics uh, mm. uh, uh, implicit in this essay. Uh, in, in, instead, there's sort of like a respect, a respect for the system while acknowledging that it needs to be fixed. And so the, the idea of tutelage as enslavement uh, indicates a flaw in the system, right? But uh, mm-hmm. the idea of courage overcoming that flaw is a, uh, a, an opportunity to perfect this uh, system, which has possibility. Yeah, that's good stuff, Danny. And I mean, the only thing I'd add to that is, I mean, with the tutelage as the noun here, and I, and I don't know German nearly well enough to know if this is a a literary link or just a conceptual link, but there's also at the very least an echo of the of St. Paul's epistle to the Galatians here, that the law serves as his sort of pedagogue, but the aim is not forever to remain under the pedagogue, but eventually to emerge out from under it. You know, in St. Paul's case, you know, due to the gospel in Kant's case, because of enlightenment, because of reason. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, 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 I think you're right that it's, it's definitely an essay that starts out with a call to action, and then a little bit later on, but still early in the piece, Michael, uh, Kant links enlightenment with freedom. So talk us through some of the connections between, quote, public use of one's reason, unquote, on one hand, and particular civic duties on the other. Well, freedom is both the precondition and the result of enlightenment. Um, he says, for enlightenment of this kind, all that is needed is freedom. And the freedom in question is the most innocuous form of all freedom to make public use of one's reason in all matters. Although the way he talks about public use uh, is a little, oh, I don't know, idiosyncratic. Um, So he, he gives you this example of a clergyman. And a clergyman, let's say, has a couple of different roles he plays. On the one hand, he stands in front of his church every week and delivers a sermon. Kant does not seem to consider that public uh, a a public uh, stance, mm-hmm. uh, and 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 instead, the the clergyman's public stance is when he writes theological articles to be read by other theologians. So it is in that second stance, the uh, the 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 so-called public stance. The the I, I think it's better to call it an intellectual stance, and maybe call the uh, the. Uh, the standing in front of his congregation, call that a spiritual stance maybe. It's, it's that intellectual stance where it's important for him to be free and to be honest with himself about what he believes. And so Kant presents this, to me, very disturbing scenario in which a clergyman privately – or see, I, I, his public-private distinction is 
the opposite of what I would think it is. The, yeah. the, the clergyman, <laughs> quote unquote, publicly, right, in, in, in these articles he's writing, disagrees with major doctrines of the church. But when he stands in front of his church, the, the so-called private setting, that uh, he affirms the traditional doctrines of the church. And so I, I really think that what he's suggesting here with this public use of one's reason is that human beings split themselves into a number of different compartmentalized roles, which mm-hmm. makes sense if you think about Kant's own life, where he's this incredibly conventional bourgeois person who never makes it more than I think it's 15 miles outside of Konigsberg his mm-hmm. entire life. And he's, he's taking a walk every day at exactly the same second to, to the, to the point where the story is his neighbors could set their watches by his walking by them. Uh, and at the same time he's doing this, he's writing these, these, philosophical treatises that accomplish what he calls a Copernican revolution in philosophy mm-hmm. that, 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 that is just turning the entire metaphysical system of Western philosophy on its head. Right. Um, right. So, so it, it, it makes sense that he's doing that. I don't understand how he doesn't feel any kind of emotional strain about splitting himself into two like this and how he doesn't expect other people to also feel emotional strain like this. But it's clear that he thinks that if enough people, if we, if we have a, uh, a critical mass of intellectuals who are exercising their reason freely in public forums, and again, public forums means intellectual forums, um, mm-hmm. what's eventually going to happen is the entire society is going to be set free in the enlightenment sense of that word. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a fascinating contrast with, you know, other thinkers of that period, I mean, who really do, are calling for political revolution along with intellectual revolution, right, who who consider them pretty much to go hand in hand. And then, I mean, even beyond that, I mean, and yeah, I mean, I guess uh, it, it's a move I'll go ahead and make while we're recording. Uh, you know, it brings to to my mind, I mean, you know, certain very strident stances in the 21st century where people say, you know, if if you are aware of, you know, certain strains of biblical scholarship, for instance, and you are a preacher or a church teacher and you don't bring them in their undiluted form to your congregants, then you are lying. And it seems like Kant would say, well, no, why would you want to do that? Right. <laughs> and, and but in Kant. In his example, takes it even further, right? Because you, yeah, because you, you have this clergyman. I, I don't remember the. Does he even give an actual example, or does he just talk about it in vague terms? I think vague terms. So, Please. I mean, you, you could take it at least to say, let's say you have a clergyman who disbelieves in the physical resurrection. Mm-hmm. Uh, probably the most important thing in Christianity, right? We, we can agree on that. Um, well, he he's capable of of standing in front of the congregation and saying Christ was physically resurrected, and then immediately after the service, going back to his chambers, and uh, and writing an article uh, arguing against the physical resurrection. Mm-hmm. So, but you're you're right. I mean, maybe maybe we don't have to take it quite that strongly. Maybe we can take it as as just a, an understanding that what you say is contextual, and you, it's okay to say one thing for smaller audiences and one thing for larger audiences. Mm-hmm. Even though, again, I imagine your church audience is larger than the audience of people who read who's reading your uh, heavy duty theological writings. Right, Danny, would you add anything to that? Well, it does like fly in the face of 
uh, our ideas of authenticity today, like sort of saying what you truly believe, uh, and, and, and sort of fighting the man. And, and so in some <laughs> sense, there, there's not like a, uh, there's not really room for that approach in this, uh, in this essay at least. And, and I, I agree with Michael. I was kind of flummoxed by the, uh, I felt like you reversed the terms in some ways of private and public. Uh, I, I would think private opinion would be the opinion that I have like outside of my job and my public opinion would be the, the duties I have to do within my job. And, and, mm-hmm. and so, but he, he takes it the opposite way, which I think is interesting. If I'm, I, if you could uh, apply this model to a, a different, uh, industry, if you will, a different, uh, 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 job, uh, think about being a teacher. Um, there are particular, uh, requirements put on you by the institution, uh, in order to teach to the test or whatnot, if you're in public schools and this sort of thing. And, uh, you can, in your public capacity, uh, that is, uh, not what he's talking about. That's your private capacity. Somehow your privacy is attached to your job, basically, and the the doing of those duties. But in your public capacity, as a member of people outside of that institution, um, so you have sort of dual citizenship. And I think that that's why the the terminology flip for me is uh, is interesting, because the the idea that your public role then uh, is a sort of liberating role and not one that mm-hmm. uh, binds you necessarily to the institutions that you're working in. Uh, the teacher who has to teach these tests uh, uh, dutifully, uh, it publicly then can also write essays uh, criticizing the ideas of uh you know, these, these systematic ways of measuring, uh, education. And and I I felt like that that was, uh, initially, I think Michael said idiosyncratic. And I think that that's a really, uh, uh, good way to put it. But ultimately I think that the way he uses the term is, is, is quite productive in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Right. And I mean, also, I mean, just to put a little bit more historical context on it, we also got to remember that clergy were officials of state in 18th century Prussia. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, that's true. So, I mean, I, you know, and again, to, to take it into yet another context, you know, it might be someone who, you know, works as a beat cop, uh, but in, you know, sort of public fora, speaking as a citizen rather than as an official of state, you know, criticizes the, you know, the proliferation of private prisons or something like that, right? So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, I, once you work on it a little bit and chew on it, it does have a certain internal logic to it. Although I'm still going to agree with Michael, I mean, it still strikes me as a little bit weird, but honestly, that might play into his notion of history as a progressive thing, right? And I mean, that that vision of history as progressive really emerges from Kant's vision of public life. So, Danny, talk a little bit about the mechanisms Kant sees as moving history forward and the impossibility or perhaps the immorality of attempting to halt that progress? In what ways do you see his vision of progress sharing common ground or departing from what we think of as progressive politics in the 21st century? I think it does both. Um, And I think that the dual role that we just talked about uh, as an individual uh, who has a duty and an intellectual responsibility to people outside of his his institution, uh, his particular institution, his or her, although he does have that weird, uh, sexist comment. uh, Oh yeah. Yeah. about it, the... it's it's still the 18th century, man. <laughs> yes, I, I I just felt I had to say that right now because um, I'm yeah. using his myself. But um, uh, the dual role though uh, sets up the scenario 
in which the system maintains itself. Like the system is not overthrown and, and it continues to operate because the uh, ethical enlightened citizen who works within that system upholds his duties that he may disagree with. He or she may mm-hmm. disagree with. And, uh, and so, uh, but the fact that Kant identifies uh, an outside allegiance as well um, and provides that same individual with a bit of ethical distance from the institution that they're bound to um, creates this system in which this uh, dialectic really is, is possible in which progress can happen because new ideas can then enter the system uh, and ultimately change it for the better and ultimately work towards uh, perfecting it. Um, and then in this way, the institutions themselves embody the individual rights that uh, Kant is actually arguing for. Uh, they don't necessarily – they're not stand directly opposed to them. So you, it's, mm-hmm. it's difficult to disentangle individual rights from institutional responsibility in this uh, way of looking at things. And individual responsibility, right? Because he says yes. – he, he, he says to, to not dare to be wise is to essentially – condemn your entire society to whatever the opposite of progress is. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and, yes. And so the student, uh, the subjects who support these institutions, in this case, he's talking about clergy, uh, carry out their private duties that they may personally disagree with. Right. Uh, but they have the freedom to speak out in this public, uh, this public capacity. Uh, uh, and that way they can sort of complain about the very thing that they're doing, uh, which gives them, uh, I think rhetorically, what we would call ethos <laughs> in a kind of freshman comp mm-hmm. uh, situation. Someone I can I can rely on this person's opinion about things, um, and then uh, this uh, this order uh, is established. Then uh, becomes a newly introduced order. So you have this uh, the the system that exists is always being um, perfected. And so for me, I know that Nathan is going to uh, – his head will explode when I say this. But what is popularly <laughs> considered the Hegelian dialectic, what we, 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 we popularly uh, like think about, <laughs> I can sort of see the roots of here. I know this is predates Hegel. But, uh, but that, that system – Not by of, that much though. Well, and I think right. Hegel may have read some Kant. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You reckon? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> um, now in terms of the um, 20th century or 20 – or like modern – progressive politics, uh, there does, I think the ways that it's similar is there seems to be an inherent faith in progress as always being good and forward and, 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 Mm -hmm. uh, always in the perfecting, uh, teleology. Uh, there's almost like a religious dogma surrounding it, the way he's talking about it here. And maybe that's because he's using clergy as his primary example. Um, Mm -hmm. but it works under the assumption that the individual as a, a, a free, uh, body uh, as a free like mind uh, can be is uh, the ultimate good of mankind like that is sort of the uh, like implicit in his claim um, like I said I don't think this is particularly radical uh, he has uh, he accounts for periods of time in which it's okay to slow progress as a kind of sort of preparation for everybody else in this essay um, and mm-hmm. so I feel like there's a uh, there's this whole provision about posterity that he has uh, somewhere in here. Uh, oh Lord, this essay is too big for me to look at right now. But um, there's this whole <laughs> provision about uh, 
like knowing that we can't just save things because we have them we've, because we've inherited them, but we have to somehow uh, rethink them. Um, but not just really throw the baby out with the bathwater as well. Um, mm-hmm. And so, yeah, that would be uh, the places I feel like it sort of looks like modern progressivism in some ways, but it isn't particularly radical. So it seems somewhat conservative in other ways as well. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess all I would add to that is that, you know, this vision of history as progressive really is something that comes into the Western consciousness, I mean, in this 18th century period, right? I mean, and really it sort of rises as a competitor to the certainly more pessimistic but but really apocalyptic vision of history that traditional Christianity tends to have, right? Mm-hmm. That you know, the age that we live in is this present darkness and, you know, what will uh, come of it is not that we will work our way out of the darkness into light, but rather that light will simply descend upon us in an eschatological manner. Uh, And, you know, I mean, as as you've noted, I mean, Kant seems to think that those two visions are not incompatible, uh, but certainly the controlling metaphor changes there. But, I mean, that's kind of Kant's thing in general, right? Taking two things that look incompatible and saying, oh, you can actually do both of them, even, yeah, if, it, even uh, if it doesn't actually make any sense. Right, right. I mean, which is why, uh, you know, I, and I still listen to Christ the Center. I know you don't, Michael, but uh, Kant is one of those figures that just drives those guys nuts. It's, because, it's because, he's, because he's trying to bridge all these gaps? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, part of their project is to say, no, you will not build bridges onto this island. <laughs> well, and plus, beating up on Kant allows him to beat up on Karl Barth because Cornelius Van Til says he he accepts Kantian metaphysics or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But that idea of island too, I think, is, is that's a good metaphor to use uh, because I feel like that's a, a, a particular feature of modern day progressivism is there's these sort of set of uh, dogmas that cannot be assailed, right? And they become their own form of posterity for him. And, and so there is that idea of having a, a dual mind that we talked about right mm-hmm. at the beginning of this podcast um, sets up the possibility to rethink things that are accepted at any given moment. And so while that does lead to progress in, uh, uh, in changing the status quo, uh, mm-hmm. the definition of terms of what needs to be changed often doesn't uh, in I would say in, in many cases in contemporary thought in general, not just progressivism, uh, but we don't allow that sort of reflection, uh, that reflective activity to happen about the ideas themselves. And I feel like that's one thing where Kant, this idea doesn't inform contemporary politics in general. Well, he, he kind of he kind of takes the social contract, which I, you know I guess existed as a thing, and, and he says this ha- <laughs> this has to be reevaluated every generation. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. It, every every generation is going to have to decide for itself what its relationship to all these things is. So yeah, you're right. It is it is anti dogmatic at least publicly. Mm-hmm. Right. Incidentally, right. listeners who are interested in what Danny's saying about dogmatism in 21st century progressivism, I would recommend you go listen to the Joseph Bottom interview I did that went up yesterday because that is a big part of what his book is about. Mm -hmm. Right. I mean, really from top to... (laughs) (laughs) All right, let's shift gears. Michael, Kant's essay demonstrates, I mean, perhaps better than most Enlightenment-era texts, 
that the Enlightenment was not a uniform movement intellectually or artistically and certainly not politically. Uh, so say a little bit about Frederick the Great, his place in Prussian history, and how it struck you to see Kant equate the Age of Enlightenment with the century of Frederick, and then to say, argue as much as you will and about what you will, only obey. Out of all the bizarre things written in this essay, that has to be the most bizarre, right? <laughs> that, he's, that he's praising that attitude? Think what you want as long as you obey me. Oh, man. Yeah, because yeah, that's not totalitarian. <laughs> But I mean, it, it kind of fits in with this this Kantian notion that that what matters is freedom of the freedom of the mind. Yeah, D- dare to be wise. It's not dare to be ethical. It's not dare to do the right thing. It's not dare to make society better. It's dare to be wise. It's 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 an intellectual activity. Mm-hmm. And so he can he can praise a guy like Frederick the Great um, about whom more in a moment. Kant is at a weird position in history. Uh, we tend to think of him as the ultimate Enlightenment figure, and in a lot of ways he is. He comes at the very end of the Enlightenment. Um, and the Enlightenment reaches Prussia long, I mean centuries after it has happened in Scotland and France. Um, Prussia is a whole when, uh, when when Scotland and France are being enlightened. And now that I've said that, I'm not enough of a historian to know even when Prussia exi- when Prussia began to exist as a uh, as a unit, but at any rate, Prussia was not as advanced a civilization as 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 these other two places. So it's not surprising that it comes late and that Kant is its major figure. Kant is also the last he's the last Enlightenment figure, which means in some ways he's the first Romantic figure, and the the Romantics love him mostly, I suspect, out of a misreading of what he means by transcendental. So <laughs> so like Emerson reads the Critique of Pure Reason. And takes it to be saying essentially what he's saying in his early essays, uh, which it's not, as far as I can tell. <laughs> so romanticism in a lot of ways is a misreading of Kantian Enlightenment philosophy. But at the same time, mm-hmm. I think you can probably still call Kant the uh, the first romantic, in a, maybe not the first because Rousseau is a person, but um, a, a precursor to romanticism, even as he is the the pinnacle of enlightenment thought. So he, mm-hmm. he sums up this movement and dismantles it at, at the same time. And, uh, and it's, it's all because he, he, he's able to exist because Prussia takes so long to become modern. Right. And it is Frederick the great, uh, who, who makes that happen. He is, he is himself one of those figures who maybe can only exist in the Enlightenment, one one of these great polymaths who's interested in absolutely everything and is really good at absolutely everything. He was a musician. He's, he was a great military strategist, revered in Germany, apparently up to the time of the Second World War. Um, mm-hmm. He liked philosophy. He was interested in theology. He... Uh, he 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 he's responsible indirectly for some of the great architecture of Prussia. And at the same time, he's this political figure who recommends a sort of totalitarianism. I, I, I mm-hmm. mean that 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 quote that that Kant uses, and let, let me go back and find it so I can make sure I say it right. But I hear on all sides the cry, "Don't argue, 
The officer says, don't argue, get on parade. The tax official, don't argue, pay. The clergyman, don't argue, believe. Only one ruler in the world says, argue as much as you like about whatever you like, but obey. And apparently that's an actual quote from Frederick the Great. And, and it, it really kind of sums up his political philosophy. He saw himself as kind of a benevolent overlord. Um, that that he was he was in some sense a dictator is the wrong word he was a monarch and he was an absolute monarch yet at the same time under his rule because he did believe in certain types of freedom Prussia becomes more open than it had ever been before and and perhaps not coincidentally moves into the modern age at the same time but like he gave jobs to Jesuit priests after after they stopped being able to get work in the Catholic church. Um, he, he promoted Protestantism for the most part in, in Prussia, but still he gave, uh, he, he gave Catholics some chances. He, he, he was not as oppressive as you would tend to expect an absolute monarch to be. Although from a democratic perspective, of course he was quite oppressive and was an absolute monarch and did what he mm. wanted in a lot of ways. He's a very interesting figure. And, and I, I don't know the extent to which what is enlightenment could have been written under any other ruler, because it, it really, it is rather clearly among other things, an attempt to suck up to, to Frederick. Yeah. <laughs> which is funny because Frederick dies like 18 months after it's published. <laughs> so I, I don't know if, if Kant felt the effort was wasted. Whether whether he actually believed some of these strange things that that we see here, or whether he is just sucking up, I don't know. But cer certainly, this this essay bears the stamp of Frederick the Great. Mm -hmm. Although I will point out once again, I am not a historian and have never studied Prussia, so I'm <laughs> sure we have a listener who's going to write in and tell me I don't know anything about Frederick the Great. Well, it's kind of what we do on this show, and maybe this will actually get uh, Chris Garretts out of hiding, and he can correct our reading of Frederick the Great. The last time I saw Garretts, he told me he doesn't listen to podcasts. Well, <laughs> then I can say whatever I want about him. But that's true. <laughs> Tell him you don't read blogs. <laughs> <laughs> well, whether he's, you know, what he, as you say, sucking up to Frederick the Great or not, after that, he does make an interesting um, observation about the paradox of republics, uh, of free republics. Uh, uh, he says the republic, when you uh, argue as much as you will and about what you will, only obey. So you, the emperor, the, the, the tyrant in this case, has given uh, freedom of thought, right, basically, as long as you're doing what I'm telling you to do, say whatever you like. Uh, a republic could not dare say such a thing. Here is shown a strange and unexpected trend in human affairs in which almost everything looked at in the large is paradoxical. A greater degree of civil freedom appears advantageous to the freedom of mind of the people, yet it places inescapable limitations upon it. A lower degree of civil freedom, on the contrary, provides the mind with room for each man to extend himself to his full capacity. Um, I, I have to this point not mentioned trilling, but I will now. I, I promised myself I wouldn't do this. But um, uh, th this is uh, – I, I, I think it undergirds a lot of the ways he thinks about things um, – and probably one of the things that characterizes the break between the old left and the new left in American politics, I feel like there's a uh, uh, an idea that um, absolute individual freedom uh, means that you have less like impetus to think about change. And, and so like the idea that you can do anything you want means you no longer have to think about things. And, and so mm -hmm. uh, this was, I think, uh, why Trilling preferred in his sense British literature which had these kind of social 
uh, which came out of a society which had what he perceived as more social restrictions on people, and it led to uh, more kind of probing uh, deep literature. Uh, whereas he saw American literature, which was much more open and had fewer social conventions, uh, he thought he thought of it as a little thin. Uh, and so, I feel like the, uh, I could see the roots of that thought in this paradox here that uh, about. Uh, Liberty, basically, uh, civil liberty mm-hmm. actually is in some ways stands against liberty of mind, uh, and that that is one that is a a classic trilling way to uh, approach a, a question is the idea that something good can actually undermine itself, and and that's that's trilling's dialectical mind right there. Right, it's also a very Platonic thought, right? Because you know if you give the mind. Uh, free reign, and then what the mind come up comes up with, then gets translated into policy. Uh, then what you got is the sort of you know horror movie democracy that Plato that Socrates describes in the Republic, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, where you know depending on what the whims of the people latch onto in any given moment, the city could be taken in any given direction. Uh, so I mean you know you're right. I mean you know this is a, a profoundly anti-democratic sentiment he's got here it's also one though and i mean it, it, it's funny I, I i'm just now finishing up teaching crime and punishment uh in one of my literature classes uh it's one that dostoevsky seems to latch onto in his own novels you know the fact that uh russia is under this czarist regime and you know uh very corrupt but also very absolutist means that you have this, you know, thriving and wild intellectual subculture, the intelligentsia, uh, as it gets called. Uh, and, you know, you, you do get the sense, or I get the sense, I should say, from Dostoevsky's novels that he sort of imagines that as a particularly Russian phenomenon precisely because of their political order. I was just thinking, a few weeks ago, a student asked me, We'd been going through all these modern and contemporary art movements in my history of modern Western thought class, and and the student asked, "How can you continue to rebel when society expects you to rebel?" Oh, mm-hmm. and I said, "What you can do is go to a Christian college where there's still something to rebel against." Yeah, <laughs> you, exactly. you know, I mean, exactly. the, the the very things that frustrate you about this place are things that allow you to have something to kick. Uh, whereas, I mean, I mean, otherwise, there, there's so few taboos left in, in mainstream society that the only thing, the only way you can kick them is by being un-PC or whatever. You know, you can you can right, go on promoting right. rape or something. Here, here it's a little easier. <laughs> here it's a little easier to rebel. Uh huh. It's like a Marlon Brando movie. Um, what do you have to rebel against? What do you got? Yeah. And if you got, and if you got nothing, you're in trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, and it's interesting, too, that, I mean, a, a couple of the television shows that I watch with some frequency are interesting precisely because there are these orders against which characters may or may not rebel at any given moment. I mean, they're very, very different shows. I mean, you know, one of them is Sons of Anarchy, where you've got the, you know, very hierarchical and dangerously violent structure of the motorcycle gang. And, you know, a lot of the plot tension comes into play when people have to make ethical decisions, you know, am I, am I going to go against the club or not? Uh, but then on the other hand, I mean, I, and again, that I watch both of these shows probably says something about my mental state, but, uh, Downton Abbey, right. I mean, who mm. it has, has lost some steam, I'm going to say, but, uh, is still interesting precisely because of that great question of, 
you know, the, the power of traditional social order and, you know, the, the goodness and the, uh, decorum, I guess, of opposing it when, when to do so is right. Uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I, I think this is definitely one of the more fertile ideas, even at, even as I agree with Michael, once again, I'm agreeing with Michael too much the show, but (laughs) I, I agree with him when he says that, you know, uh, it is it is one of the squirreliest things in this essay. Yeah. Well, you do hate but, Kant more than you love Jesus. <laughs> and yes, listeners, it has dropped. I I was waiting for it. I really was. <laughs> but it's also, I mean, I think for the Christian mind, then I mean, it raised what you've described, Michael, particularly with the uh, the idea of going to a Christian college to find something to rebel against. Uh, I mean, that puts the Christian in the ethical position that Kant establishes for his uh, archetypical clergyman in this essay is that you have to somehow uh, see yourself as apart from the institution that you are a part of, uh, and, and therefore not just seek out works of art, for example, the, the sort of prototypical Christian movie that just reflects back at you the assumptions of the culture that you're uh, like working and thriving in, uh, but actually step aside from that and, and uh, or step outside of that actually and 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 find ways to challenge it. And so it, it does. Uh, it, that example does incorporate rebellion as ethical act uh, of devotion, uh, which is an interesting um, uh, paradox. Which actually, I taught uh, the conversion of the Jews by Philip Roth this semester in my Intro to Lit class, and it's sort of the central uh, dilemma for the character Ozzy in that in that book. I mean, he sort of is so devout to his Jewish faith that he is willing to believe that God is able to make Mary have a baby without intercourse and therefore it subverts the Jewish faith that he's so devout to. Right. So the, uh, the, uh, it's like an interesting paradox that, uh, that you, you like bring up very, very nicely. And if our, if our listeners will think back two years ago to our intellectuals episode, mm-hmm. we, we talked there about this Harold Rosenberg essay where he says that what sets intellectuals apart is they're feeling ill at ease in their own milieu. So, mm-hmm. so the idea that what, what separates an intellectual from just any professor is that the intellectual is uneasy being a professor. Mm-hmm. Right, the, right. The intellectual is uneasy being a journalist or in, anything else. So I, I, think, I think in some ways you can see a line from what is Enlightenment to that essay as well. Right. And to Groucho Marx, I refuse to join any club that would have me for a member. He's, right? he's a great, the great intellectual Groucho <laughs> Marx. You're really hitting all your uh, your buttons here. Yeah, I was going to say Danny's, Danny's getting it early and often. I've got, a, I've got a short time to get all these things in. So yeah, yeah, I will say, Michael, I, I for two things about that episode two years ago. One, boy, could we have used Danny Anderson on that episode? Well, uh, I mean, we talked so much about the New York intellectuals. Yeah. And then two, uh, I, I do remember that es- essay being very gratifying because uh, it it seemed to be saying that I am an intellectual precisely because I tend to antagonize people everywhere I go. Well, and I, I always <laughs> I always give that essay to smart students who don't feel at home here. Yeah, I, I tell them, you know, if you're if you're the sort of person I suspect you are, it's not just here. You're not going to feel at home. You're not going to feel at home anywhere. Right. That's your job, man your job man it's your duty that's your private duty you su- um. you suffer for the rest of society <laughs> that's, that's the way i see myself i'm really go. a lot like jesus <laughs> <laughs>
mean, what you got to understand, Michael, is that uh, God's not dead. He's surely alive. <laughs> well. All right, all right. Living on the inside, roaring like a lion. Yes. Oh, God. Well, like I think burrito. we already did an episode on that, so... <laughs> Well, let me let me get us back on track. I don't here. know. Last time I made fun of that song, though, Coyle Neal quoted me like 400 places on the internet. So <laughs> it's the most press that. we've ever gotten. I it really that, is. <laughs> well, Danny, this essay it appears in a Berlin magazine in 1784, uh, and we know now. Uh, maybe they knew it was coming. Maybe they didn't. But it's that period between the American Revolution and the French Revolution. We've already talked about some of this already, but. Let's dig uh, in a little bit more particular detail. Uh, what does its situation between two very different unfoldings of enlightenment do to the way that we received the essay here in 2014? How could we read this as a commentary on happenings far from Prussia? Gosh, uh, I wish I knew more about history because I feel like this is a uh, a really profound question and I'm not going to give justice to, but, uh, <laughs> but it's... Um, in between, as you say, and the American Revolution, which in many ways, on the surface at least, there's the way we you know broadly conceive of it, embodies these ideas. You have sort of citizen uh, servants who are uh, uh, enlightened thinkers themselves, establish order. It's a, it's a. Uh, I mean, you have this you know break with this violent break with England in a war. But the establishment of the subsequent republic republic was quite peaceful, uh, and and so that's followed by the French Revolution, which was anything but, uh, and in fact, like culminated in the reestablishment of, of a dictator, right? Uh, and, and so I feel like the very paradox that he's accusing the republic of of uh, embodying at the end of this essay is sort of uh like focused back on this idea too i mean i i feel like it's almost written from the perspective a rather naive perspective of prog- progress as always good and individual liberty uh of thought as always good and so you can see the french revolution as being sort of the dark side of of uh of of the implications of this essay um and mm-hmm. particularly the um of you know the 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 uh, the lack of what he calls private duty here. Uh, people are just sort of, I mean, it's chaotic, right? Mm-hmm. And, and that's exactly what he's trying to avoid here. So, in, Right, the violent yeah. dissolution of the established yes. church. Yes, and, and it's uh, an open question. I'd really be willing to listen to either side to say, I mean, if the French Revolution had embodied more of these principles in this essay, perhaps it would have gone more like the American Revolution. Uh, and so, but... Yeah, I, it's a it's a question that I'm still puzzling over myself. So maybe Michael he knows about Frederick and all that. So maybe he knows. So yeah, I, I don't. Sorry. <laughs> all right, that is your commentary. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I I guess the only thing I would add is that you know, I mean, the we've already talked about this a little bit, but the uh, his suspicion of republics at the end of this essay. I mean. I have to think that that is at least partially a reference to Articles of Confederation era United States, mm-hmm. you know, because, I mean, it, it's not something that exists uh, hypothetically in 1784, but, yes. you know, the colonies have become uh, the Confederated States of America. I think that's the title of the nation at that point. Someone who does American history is going to correct me, I'm sure. 
Uh, but you know, it's before the constitutional convention. Yes. Uh, but it's still, you know, Europe generally regards it as a Republic. Yes. So, I mean, I, I think that, you know, as the, as events heat up in France on one hand, he could probably point to that and say, okay, you know, that's what happens when you don't let people argue. Yes. But then, you know, you keep pointing West and you say, yeah, but look across there to the, you know, the colonies, right? I mean, that's what happens when you let people argue, but they don't obey anything. You end up with this anti-intellectual space, um, which, you know, as far as I can tell, and and again, listeners, if you can correct my impression of this, I'd be glad to be corrected. Uh, But it seems to me that the impression of America as a sort of anti-intellectual space arises fairly early, that by the time de Tocqueville writes Democracy in America... Uh, that's not a new insight that he's bringing to the table, but it's sort of a confirmation of what folks think about it. And yet they, uh, like the French particularly like thought the world of people like Franklin, uh, who they saw, uh, who they saw these sort of natural geniuses, you know? And and so Mm -hmm. there was sort of like a, a, an allure to that, uh, uh, to that anti-intellectualism as well though but yeah mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. but it is like you're right the american republic with its civil freedoms then becomes this place where it embodies the paradox i guess that he talks about in the last paragraph of this essay yeah. um yeah the 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 it's the paradox of, of, a, of a republic in that way so i honestly when i was reading this and it's been too long since i've read it uh but i was thinking of edmund burke's reflections on the french revolution uh, oh yeah yeah uh, i so, hadn't thought about that yeah. go ahead <laughs> Well, no, that, but that's what I was thinking. I mean, Burke, uh, his critique of that, as, as I remember it, and it's been, I can't speak in any detail about this today, but uh, w- was like appalled at the kind of uh, the radical, like just uh, overheaval or un- upheaval. Sorry. Right, it, was, it was going too, going too fast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. It was going too mm-hmm. fast and you're getting rid of too many of these institutions of stability that allow for, uh, in this essay, this posterity to kind of slowly and ethically change over time, uh, like generation to generation, it was going too fast. And so I, I feel like, um, uh, like Burke is a nice piece of insight for this question about Kant. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. By the way, I'm going to start using the word overheaval. Yes. That's, that, that's great. <laughs> well, prepositions are entirely, uh, you know, are arbitrary anyway. So, yeah. uh, uh, sorry about that. That's all right. That's all right. <laughs> well, Michael, I want to demythologize Alf Klarung here. Uh, you know, the German word for enlightenment. Certainly, a couple of hundred years and some change have, at the very least, made us a bit more aware of the historical contingency of the enlightenment. Uh, and the fact that it, like other systems of thought, relies on axioms, convictions by definition not subject to explanation or justification. And yet, in spite of that, it seems to me that progress, at least as recently as Richard Weaver's famous essay on ultimate terms and maybe even beyond, remains a fairly steady and widespread God term or ultimate term. Uh, what do you think has made progress last in ways that, for instance, empire hasn't i mean very few people will claim in 2014 to be an empire but a whole lot of people will claim to be progressive empire is quite a bit easier to define progress is a term that suggests a teleology but does not demand any particular teleology 
So ah. the, the reason the reason progress works as a god term and will probably continue to work for a god term until human beings no longer exist is that it can mean anything you want it to mean. I mean, if if what you want is a if if what you want from society is one where uh, where the the rich have been overthrown over what, what was it over. Uh, what was your, what was Danny's neologism? Overheaved. <laughs> Overheaved. <laughs> if what you want to society where the rich have been overheaved and everybody is given the same rate to do any job, if that's where you think society should lead or is leading, then then uh, the the systematic murder of the rich is progress, right? On the other hand, if what you want is a society where the the poor have no voting rights and uh, and only the rich you have to you have to have a certain amount of money to make any kind of political decision disenfranchising becomes very progressive disenfranchising poor voters becomes progress so it's it's a term that suggests teleology but not what kind of teleology and so it's it's infinitely malleable okay yeah and i think like the the idea of malleability is sort of what i was thinking about too but uh, progress much more embodies uh, our ideology of the individual, like, you know, I mean, the sort of, oh, okay. Uh-huh. And, and so, uh, that is something that most people agree on in modern America, particularly, but in Western thought is individual rights are like, that's how everybody frames all of their political, adi- uh, <laughs> uh, for, uh, positions is individual rights. And even the idea like when empire is used, it's now for the service of individual rights. So like a rap mogul will have will could talk about his business as an empire or you know what I'm saying? Mm, right. And so uh, and so I feel like it, the reason that that term retains its godlike status and whereas empire has not necessarily or it only does when it's related to individual achievement, uh, then I think that um, – um, I, I think it's be, it's because it fits nicely within the ideology of the individual. Mm-hmm. Right. And I'm just thinking about the phenomenon that, I mean, you could uh, present yourself as a public intellectual and say that your main project is to be anti-imperial. But if you present yourself as anti-progressive, uh, it's going to be a lot harder to gain public purchase. Well, because an anti-progressive would be the kind of parody of a conservative who wants everything to stay exactly as it is. As Danny very helpfully points out, even Edmund Burke didn't want that. He just wanted it to change yeah. at a reasonable rate, a natural, organic rate. Mm-hmm. His, his his metaphor throughout Reflections on the Revolution is is organic change. I mean, he's he's talk, kind of talking about biological revolution on the social level, or uh, evolution on the social level. Mm-hmm. Evolution, not mm-hmm. revolution. So yeah, you couldn't say you were anti-progressive because I don't think there's anybody in the world who wants every single facet of human life to stay exactly the way it is. It's... Right, right. Yeah, I guess that makes some sense. I, that, that does. All right. Well, I want to do a wine and cheese question to head out the door this week. Uh, so, that's, Danny. That's against my contract. Sorry. Oh. Um. <laughs> Not mine, but I am at my office, and it is 8 o'clock in the morning. <laughs> and all of a sudden, we're in Acts chapter 2. Could, could, we, do, uh, but... could we do a Bloody Mary question instead? That would be... <laughs> Man, I don't even get into the, the second clause of the question. Sorry. So, Danny, here's the scenario. If you were to teach this essay in a general education liberal arts class, 
uh, with what text would you pair it for a class session and how would you teach the pair? Uh, tell us about that class and then as much as, as much as you have, uh, no, when you have argued as much as you want to argue, then just obey and pass the baton to Michael. <laughs> All right. Um, well, uh, definitely not Matthew Arnold or Lionel Trilling. Um, let me just say that up front. So what I would pair it with um, is actually I was thinking of Kafka's uh, short story, Report to an Academy, uh, which is a, uh, a story about an ape who has been captured and brought from the continent uh, to uh, America by, I think, some circus handlers or something, and somehow has learned – to speak as a human and is giving a report on his education as, as a, as a, as a, as a reformed ape, if you will. And so, uh, this short story becomes essentially just an extended speech to these academicians, academicians. Um, and so we have this, uh, uh, ape who's very suspicious and refuses to give any credence to the ideas of progress and, and individual achievement uh, <laughs> that are uh, that really undergird this essay. And so, for example, he talks about uh, when he learned his language, he wasn't doing it for freedom. He says, I, I specifically am not using the term freedom because people think of that term in silly ways. Like what I mean is I just want to be able to move around. Uh, like I want to like more, uh, I want to be able to get out of where I was. That's not the same thing as freedom. And so you have this really interesting, uh, suspicion of these enlightenment ideas uh, of education and, and, uh, individual rights. And so even though the ape, uh, has, all the like he has this like rather wonderful life uh, as a, a vaudevillian basically performer uh, and uh, and because he can speak uh, as a human being and he's very intelligent and this sort of thing in the way we define it uh, he does not uh, he will not he will not actually uh, recognize that as achievement or as freedom or as a, uh, anything that any of the uh, ideas of progress that are embodied in this essay and I really think that as a a counter argument to these assumptions of the enlightenment. I think that that short story actually um, uh, embodies almost all of them in, in really interesting ways. And so, I mean, that, that, that would be one that I would, uh, uh, I might actually write into my syllabus next semester. So, Hey, what do you got, Michael? Well, I have taught this. I used to teach it in my history of modern Western thought class, and I'm looking through the anthology to try to remember what I taught it alongside. <laughs> <laughs> I th I think I did it with other pro-Enlightenment texts. So I think I read it with med a, a little excerpt from Meditations on First Philosophy mm -hmm. and Smith's The Theory of Moral Sentiments. What's more interesting to me, though, is what we did the next day, which is kind of generally anti-Enlightenment texts. And in, in particular, I'm thinking Jean-Jacques Rousseau's Discourse on the Sciences and the Arts, which argues, not entirely convincingly, I would say, since he is himself an artist and is operating within that system, he argues that civilization and, and progress are actually bad for human beings because it makes them live unnaturally. And mm. so the, the day after we did that Enlightenment, we would read that and we would actually read a section from Reflections on the Revolution in France, which argues something similar in, I think, a less extreme way. And and so, it, it, you know, the, the idea here is that enlightenment may not be as freeing as we imagine it to be, or, or maybe as, as Danny said earlier, that in, in freeing us, it may, con it may sow the seeds of its own destruction because 
mm-hmm. maybe we're not meant to be quite as free as enlightenment figures imagine us to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, makes good sense. Makes good sense. I'd also talk about it in terms of uh, Horkheimer and Adorno's dialectic of enlightenment, which we mm-hmm. read later in the semester in that class. And, and, and that mm-hmm. that text is very much about the way that enlightenment thought slides into totalitarianism. And you certainly see that in what is enlightenment. Mm-hmm. Certainly, certainly. A um, couple ideas that I had, and I, I kind of had one that I'd like to talk about and then one that I kept in my pocket in case Michael went for it. Uh, but I get to do both, so it's good. One of them would be uh, to read this essay alongside some Flannery O'Connor short stories, mm. uh, just because there uh, you really do have a uh, a set of narratives about people who dared to be wise. Uh, whether you're talking about good country people, everything that rises must converge, revelation. Uh, I mean, a lot of her characters are people who are, you know, youngsters who think that they are wiser than the bumpkins that surround them. Uh, And again, just to put side by side a very abstract essay about dare to be wise, along with stories about people who actually act that way, so you can actually... Uh, the other one that I had in mind is actually the first essay in Will Wilson's book, Reading with Deeper Eyes. Uh, it's a collection of essays about uh, theology and literature. Uh, but the opening essay to that book talks about the sort of two defining narratives in the ancient world. And one of them is the narrative of Telemachus in the Odyssey. And his journey is defined by venturing out from his father's land and discovering himself by facing challenges out there. Uh, And he's only fit to return when he has faced those challenges successfully and become a second Odysseus. Uh, He contrasts that with the parable of the the prodigal son from the Gospel of Luke, uh, where the journey out is precisely a fall away from the true self, and it's only by returning that one actually discovers uh, one's truer existence or one's fuller existence. Uh, So again, it's one of those things where I think that Kant's pairing of, you know, the clergy with the academic journal would fit nicely alongside that pair of texts. So I think either one of those would work. So uh, college teachers out there, you're welcome. We just gave you a a good class session for some, some class session in future semesters. eh? Uh, So anyway, that's about all we got for today. I'm going to mind the clock here and mind the time. Uh, our next show, uh, like I said, will come forth in two weeks and it will be our Christmas episode. Danny will be at the helm and I have a hunch that it might go a different direction. Danny, are you going to spoil that for us or make it a Christmas surprise? Well, I haven't decided yet, so I won't spoil it then. So, all right. Very um... good. Very good. <laughs> <laughs> In the meantime, listeners, while you wait for the Christmas episode, you can find us on ChristianHumanist.org, on iTunes, where you can leave us reviews and give us stars so more people will find us with their iTunes searches. You can find, you can uh, email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. Uh, we'll probably have another email show before too long because we've gotten some really good emails from listeners. Uh, let's see here. We also have a Facebook page, all kinds of groovy things to do, so by all means, uh, make this a conversation. Tell us where we're wrong. Tell us where we're right. 
Tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about in future episodes. This is a production of the Christian Humanist Radio Network. Our intern is Zach Schmidt. Our press liaison is Kristen Philippic. And this is Nathan Gilmore in behalf of Danny Anderson and Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong, let your faith be stronger.